Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... What does that say about our economic system where an actual operator, an actual math genius makes less money building a business and growing it rather than people who play in spreadsheets? Sujit Indap and Max Frumes on a Wall Street battle for the ages. Max Frumes and Sujit Indap are the authors of a book called The Caesar's Palace Coup. And it's the subtitle of the book that really gets at the excitement of the story it tells. How a billionaire brawl over the famous casino exposed the power and greed of Wall Street. And the story itself is intense. Here's the setup so you can enjoy the actual chat a little more. Back in the mid-2000s, a private equity firm called Apollo bought Caesars, which is the company that owns casinos and hotels all over the country. You've probably heard of Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. And the deal to buy Caesars was what's called a leverage buyout or an LBO. And all that means is that Apollo borrowed money through loans and bonds to buy Caesars. And then after the deal, it was Caesars itself that was on the hook to pay off those loans and bonds. That's normal. That's just how these deals work. But the timing of the deal was terrible. Because right after, the financial crisis of 2008 happened. And Caesars really struggled because, well, people weren't gambling anymore. And because its customers were no longer booking, like, big conventions and events in Caesars hotels. Business was just terrible. And so it was inevitable that Caesars would struggle to then pay off what it owed on all that debt. So enter the other side of this Wall Street battle— A group of distressed debt investors, including the hedge funds Oak Tree and Appaloosa, they would end up buying the Caesars debt from the people who owned it before. So now Caesars owed them the money. So those are the two sides. On one side, you've got Apollo, which still owned Caesars. And then on the other side, you've got the distressed debt investors, these hedge funds. And they would end up waging an absolutely brutal fight in the legal system for control of Caesars, the company. This is a story that raises all kinds of fascinating questions about how finance works in the real world when you get outside of the textbooks and whether this kind of antagonistic and adversarial system is in the best interest of the capital markets, the economy, and society, and whether it's the best way for all these brilliant financiers and lawyers and others to spend their time. But also, if you have any interest in finance at all, it is just one hell of a suspenseful tale. So, with all that as the background, here is my chat with Sujit Indap and Max Frumis. Sujit, I'm going to start with you. Um, Understanding how private equity deals are made is really fun, but also a little bit tricky. So, let's just try to establish that first. The way that private equity works can sound complicated, but in essence, it's actually pretty simple. A private equity firm gets money from big institutions like philanthropies or pension funds or endowments, and then it takes that money and it buys other companies. But it's not only with that money that it buys other companies. A private equity firm can also borrow money by selling loans and selling bonds. And in fact, in a lot of deals, most of the money to buy the company comes from the debt, comes from borrowing. 
And then after the private equity firm takes over the company, it tries to improve the company, turn it around in, I don't know, like five years, maybe a little longer, and then sell the company for a higher price. That's how it makes its money. Am I right so far? That's right. So they've raised capital from pensions and endowments, and they take that money to buy companies. Most of it, like you said, is with leverage, but that equity portion is from those kinds of investors, kind of a five to seven year horizon. And the opportunity to make money is both from that leverage, but also buying a company cheaply and theoretically fixing something with its operations to sell it at a a higher price. So it's both the leverage and that operational point, which is essentially what private equity is about. Right. And so when a private equity firm buys a company, it's often called a leverage buyout because the buyout part is easy to understand, but it's leverage because they're using a lot of debt. And then when they buy that company, the debt itself often gets put onto the balance sheet of the company that they buy so that the debt has to be paid back from the cash flow or the earnings of the company itself that was just bought, right? Yep, exactly. Okay, now let's talk about what was going on in the mid-2000s, because it took a couple of decades, I think, a few decades for private equity to become a kind of respectable asset class, right? But by the mid-2000s, private equity was hot. I mean, it was having a moment. It felt like in 2005, 2006, you know, deal after deal was being done for records or near record amounts of money. I mean, tens of billions of dollars, right? And the debt played a big role. So what exactly was happening in the mid-2000s that led to such a great moment for private equity? Yeah, so I think there's a few factors there. So by the time we're in, say, 2005, private equity has been a respectable asset class for, say, 20 to 30 years. Typically, it was companies that were out of favor or smaller, maybe a billion or $2 billion would be a big deal. Fast forward to the mid-2000s, there's a couple of things that happened. One, because there are firms like Blackstone and TPG and Apollo and KKR that have been around now for a while and have a track record. They're raising record-setting funds, $10 billion, $15 billion, $5 billion. They have huge funds. The credit markets are very hot. Wall Street and the economy are doing well, and there's a sense you can raise a lot of money. Uh, And then finally, these firms realize we can actually partner with each other to buy companies, and we have so much more firepower uh, when we do that. So now we can actually target a Fortune 500 company. And so you're seeing companies in that era like Toys R Us and Clear Channel and TXU, which never would have been uh, a typical private equity target, suddenly be able to be bought out by private equity firms. The other interesting point uh, is that the the whole thesis of these deals was a little bit different than the heritage of private equity. These were big, well-performing companies. And the conceit now is that we don't necessarily, as a private equity firm, have to turn around this business. We can just manage its ordinary business plan, but we can put a private equity capital structure on it and then, therefore, make the money off of that leverage. That kind of leverage wouldn't work in the public markets, but there's this private market arbitrage that we can take advantage of, but there's not some kind of like like crazy scheme to, to fix the business. We can just run it ordinary course and the leverage alone will allow for a great return. Yeah, just to briefly explain what you just said, though, private equity firms traditionally used to buy smaller, maybe struggling companies and try to turn them around, really improve them. But by the mid-2000s, private equity firms were starting to look at buying huge companies, Fortune 500 companies even. And instead of just making them into better functioning companies, Now private equity firms were using all this debt, which they could raise cheaply, 
to buy companies and make returns on their investments precisely because they were using all that debt. That's what you mean when you say that private equity firms were changing the capital structure of these companies. They were adding all this debt to the books of these companies. Is that basically what you're saying here? Yeah, then that's literally like a lever, leverage. Imagine buying a house instead of putting $20 uh, for a down payment and borrowing the rest, putting $10. So for the same amount of appreciation, the return is just going to be much higher on that $10 down payment. There's just more risk as well. Okay, so that is what's happening with private equity at the time of this deal in the mid-2000s. Max, I'm going to turn to you now, and let's talk about distressed debt investors. Now, traditionally, these are typically hedge funds that buy the debt of companies that are struggling to pay off that debt, even though the companies themselves can be pretty good companies. And if they could just get rid of some of that debt, then they'd be healthy companies again. So distressed debt investors, in theory at least, buy that debt, those bonds or those loans, for super cheap, and then they will either negotiate with the company and say, hey, You don't have to pay us the full amount of the debt we just bought for cheap. You just have to pay us a bit more than we paid for the debt. And then it can actually be, again, in theory, a kind of win-win because the company gets all that debt off its books and the investors make a nice little return. But if they can't negotiate, then the distressed investors might even try to take over the company in a bankruptcy process and it'll get paid back that way. That's at least all the theory of what distressed debt investors do. How does it work in practice? In in practice, uh, modern-day distressed debt investors have weaponized the bankruptcy law uh, to basically make money off of a bunch of different facets of a company that may be in distress. And it, it doesn't necessarily matter what the health of the underlying company is at the end of the day. I think for some of the best returns, like in Caesars, the company was healthy. The business Ultimately, the company was viable. And that's why you, know, you see some of the people that are fighting mo- the most fiercely to make those investments. But it's not always necessary. Now, you can make money by, uh, say, you know, purchasing a tranche of debt and then filing a lawsuit against the company for some sort of breach in, in their legal documents and then buying you know, maybe insurance on that company defaulting and then making money like that, which is something that's happened in the past several years. It's like playing two sides of the same company. Essentially, you buy the debt of the company, not necessarily hoping that you're going to get paid back on the interest on that debt. Actually, what you're trying to do is gain some kind of a position where you can accuse the company of having broken some of its promises, and then it has to default on the debt, and you simultaneously own insurance, which pays you if the company does, in fact, default, something like that. Yeah, it's, a, it's called a manufactured default, and that is that is one of the many ways. I, and these originally distressed debt investors, you know, they had the epithet of vulture investors. They would sweep in when a company was weak and then they could buy it up and, and you know, take it off and sell it for scraps and ultimately make more than the, the you know, the sum of the parts was worth more than the whole was together. So uh, that, that reputation has become, you know, I guess a little bit more cleansed as time has gone on, even while some of the uh, tools that they use are are more aggressive. And Sujit, going back to Apollo, the private equity firm, your book kind of gets into their history, which we're not going to do here, except that I do want to point out that 
by the time Apollo buys Caesars, Apollo has this reputation as like this really feared, ruthless player in finance. Also a very creative company, really good at what it does. But, you know, they use bare knuckle tactics. I mean, if you get into a fight with Apollo, you're going to lose. It's going to be messy. And they also have a tough internal culture, internal uh, work environment. And there's this passage in the book that quotes somebody anonymously saying that they really admire Apollo's tactics, but they'd never let their grandkid work there. Yeah, and so they have this uh, rollicking atmosphere at work. And and that actually ends up being a positive in the sense that anyone can bring up good ideas and ideas are debated on their merits. Uh, But within this office or this culture is this cutthroat system where if your idea is bad and no one likes it, you will will hear about it. And on some level, everyone's an equal and a peer, but it is a place where they don't mince words. And it is a marketplace of ideas, a meritocracy of ideas, but it is also rough in a way that other firms uh, probably are not. All right. So it's the mid-2000s. Apollo, along with another private equity firm called TPG, gets interested in buying Caesars and does buy Caesars, which is this big conglomerate of casinos and hotels across the country. There's, of course, Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. And there's something crucial to the story, which is that when Apollo bought Caesars, Caesars was already a pretty good business. It's being run by this economist named uh, Gary Loveman, who's done all these innovative things, introducing these new programs, one I think called Total Rewards. It's all going pretty well. And so this was not actually an attempt to turn around the company. It was an attempt to make a big return on the deal by borrowing a lot of money to finance the deal and then adding that debt to the balance sheet of Caesars, meaning Caesars now owes the money, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so the one other quirk about this, which is important, I think, is that private equity has stayed away from Las Vegas and casinos for a long time. Uh, And that's because, um, you know, it's a great business, high cash flow would be naturally a good fit. But particularly in Nevada, there's very onerous licensing requirements. You have to get vetted by this uh, gaming commission and control board and Harry Reid, the senator, well, before Senator was the guy who revolutionized this process to root out organized crime. And so that process was very invasive. And to get actually a license to operate a casino is complicated. So it takes 14 months between December of 2006 when this deal is announced and January of 2008 when it closes. Uh, and that's important because the world kind of changes in those yeah. 14 months. As we know now, the recession started in December of 2007. So the deal literally closes within about a month or two of the recession having started. And so, Max, in terms of Caesars, the business, right, how does it end up getting affected by the financial crisis? Um, and what sort of happened in, like, those years right after the buyout? Uh, so the casino business in Las Vegas in general was decimated by the financial crisis. Uh, Not so resilient and, as the, as the uh, and, initial I mean, pitch it's, was, it's, right? You know, people are going to gamble. People are going to gamble. It's, for the most part, recession-proof, but it's not the great financial crisis proof uh, is, is what they learned. At the same time, you know, people are going to gamble, but they're not necessarily going to buy as much food and drink. And so, you know, we we talked to people that describe the scene at Caesars where people are starting to come back or still coming to the casinos, but they're bringing their own coolers and <laughs> they're bringing their own they're bringing their own food and they're not spending as much money. And so this whole system of promotion that Gary Loveman had put together for total rewards is not bringing in as many dollars as as they 
needed in order to cover their interest expense. Uh, in the meantime, this $25 billion of debt is 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 uh, uh, just knocking at their door like a wolf with interest that uh, they, they don't have the money to pay. Sujit, this is a real problem, and it also points to a kind of classic criticism of private equity, which is that when a private equity firm buys a company, it layers that company up with a whole lot of debt. And so if the company, in this case Caesars, is struggling to pay off just the interest on that debt, it also means it has less money to, I don't know, turn around the business, invest in the business, a bigger cushion, for example, to withstand further losses if it keeps struggling. In other words, that money could be going towards the company. Instead, it's going to pay off debt. And so, yeah, this is a traditional complaint about private equity. I don't know if that applies across the entire private equity landscape and all the companies that are bought by private equity firms, but it does seem to apply very strongly, very acutely in this case. Is that right? Yeah, that's fair. So private equity firms do a lot of scenario modeling. They think they build in contingencies that if the business falls apart by a little bit, that uh, the debt can still be serviced. Uh, it turned out in the Caesars case, uh, their models were not uh, ready for the financial <laughs> crisis, believe it or not. And so, so they, they did have models where they were trying to anticipate, hey, if things get worse, don't worry, Caesars will still be able to pay off the debt. That's right. They had, they had said to regulators that if the business's profitability falls by 30%, we'll still be fine here, even though there is a, a relatively high amount of debt here. In fact, 30% did not account for uh, once-in-a-century financial crisis. And so it becomes a problem in, those, in, a problem in the years after 2008, for sure. So did Caesars' business fall off by way more than 30%? Is that what happened? Yeah, I mean— uh, they were paying $2 billion alone in interest expense. And so when conventions stopped going to Las Vegas and Atlantic City and the president of the United States is saying fat cat bankers shouldn't be spending their shareholders' money on yeah, on Nobody on was junkets. going to Vegas, no, yeah, right? And, yeah. and, uh, the clientele was very much uh, not the traditional high roller, uh, at least for a certain amount of time. Atlantic City fell off very sharply, and then states around uh, New Jersey started uh, – putting in um, their own local casinos, which kind of secularly hurt Atlantic City because Pennsylvania and Connecticut suddenly had their own properties to compete. So this was just all A huge catastrophe, right. So yeah. it then struggles to be able to pay off the debt. And so I'm just trying to think of like, well, if Caesars had more money, more cash that it wasn't using to pay off the debt, then I don't know, it would be able to withstand this blow a little better, right? And that's a great point, particularly in a business like this, which generates a lot of cash typically, but is also very capital intensive. And so when you're in the hospitality business, there's a lot of money that's put into renovating hotel rooms and building new facilities. And those kinds of investments allow you to charge more per night per room. And when you don't do that, the the properties suffer and then suddenly uh, you can't compete with the casino down the street. And one thing that's actually very interesting that someone told me was that if this leveraged buyout had not happened and Harris or Caesars, as it later became known, uh, hadn't had this massive debt load. Caesars, before the LBO, was an investment-grade or high, highly rated company with little debt. In fact, when the financial crisis happened, they could have been a consolidator on the strip. They could have used that capacity to buy so, up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So, in other words, what you're saying is that if Caesars had not been bought by Apollo and TPG, the private equity firms, that it had such a great position that when the financial crisis hit, it was Caesars itself that may have been buying other companies, not being bought. 
Uh, or been vulnerable to uh, all the interest and debt from, from the leverage buyout. So, yeah, all the other troubled casinos, they could have just gobbled up and been the dominant player. Instead, they're paying $2 billion of interest and trying to fight off a bankruptcy. Am I just exaggerating too much to say that it seems like this buyout ruined Caesars? Is that crazy to say? Like, is that is that just too strong a word? Does it depend on how we're defining ruined here? Because you're saying that this was a really strong business. And that if it had gone into the downturn without all this new debt, that it might have been consolidating, as you said. It might have been the dominant player buying out other companies on the cheap instead of getting bought out before the crisis and then having to owe all this money. Like, that, it seems like it ruined it. I think ruin is probably strong. I think it uh, uh, observers would say and the company would say and the insiders would say, if they were being honest, that it ended up being a missed opportunity and that Caesars could not, which had a great brand name, had a great kind of operating team and model and had been an incredible company for 10 to 15 years. The debt just sapped it of of its strength and what made it special. And the company kind of muddled along. But uh, ruin, I think, might be a little strong. And we'll, we'll talk about why uh, <laughs> that is uh, the case in a second. Yeah. Took away, sapped it of its vitality. Right. It's a, that's a that's a, fair, a nice yeah. nice uh, metaphor yeah. there. So you know. So here's the part of the book that I find the hardest to explain to my friends who haven't read the book and who maybe don't have a super deep background in finance, which is what were all these legal fights between Apollo and TPG on the one side versus the distressed debt investors on the other side, all right? So let me start with this. Caesars owes all this money in debt, okay? And then Apollo starts trying to do all these things to make it possible to alleviate that debt burden, so to speak. So in other words, to pay off less of that debt, okay? It doesn't mean pay off no debt, but to pay off less of that debt and to make it harder for the distressed debt investors to come after Caesars, let's say by, I don't know, claiming some of the casinos or whatever, right? Taking assets away from Caesars um, in exchange for not having been paid off, right? So that we're starting from that standpoint. Is that about right? Yeah. I mean, I think the simplest way to think about this is that Private equity firms in their heart of hearts know that out of 10 investments, two or three or four, some small number of them will not work out. And traditionally, what they will do is they accept that. And when things get tough, they will just hand over the keys to the creditors and say, this company is now yours. It's fine. It happens from time to time. We don't like it, but we can live with that outcome. So out of, let's say, 10 companies that a private equity firm buys, maybe three or four, those companies, you know, they don't turn around, they keep struggling, and so they can't pay off their debt. And basically what will happen is that the private equity firm, like Apollo, will say, here, the company is no longer ours, we can't pay off the debt we owe, so the company is now yours to the distressed debt investors, and then they take over the company. Yeah, imagine right? again like a, a bank taking over a house when a homeowner can't make the payments anymore. Right. Caesars uh, and transactions of that era mark a change in that attitude in that Apollo and TPG, who are the owners of Caesars who bought it in the LBO, make the decision that, in fact, they like this business. They think it's going to turn around. It's not turning around quickly enough for them, but it's going to turn around eventually. So we're not they are not going to give up. They're going to come up with some creative way to keep their option alive 
and they will wait for the company to to snap back and grow into its debt structure. It just has to figure out a way to do that. And so the creativity of that uh, and the propriety of that ultimately becomes the rub in this story, as you just described, between Caesar's owners, Apollo and TPG, and those it's borrowed from, which eventually become these distressed debt hedge funds. Yeah, and what, what's interesting about all, the, all this is that when a company issues debt, okay, whether it's bonds or loans or whatever, there are, of course, credit documents involved that stipulate, you know, what the company can later do or not do. Is that correct? Yeah, and those are called covenants. Okay, so the, and these credit documents have these things called covenants that say, you know, well, give me an example of like a covenant that's sort of important in a case like this one. Yeah. Uh, it would just say the company would have to maintain a certain amount of profitability relative to its debt load. Usually that's expressed as a ratio, like three times or four times or five times profits to interest, for example. Okay. And if it doesn't keep that profitability, then the investor, the debt investor has options. What can it do, for example? Yeah, so that would constitute a default if you were to violate, if you were to trip a covenant, as the expression uh-huh. goes. And that tripping of that covenant forces the company then either to pay off the debt or immediately or negotiate for some kind of relief from those creditors. But the negotiating leverage, for lack of a better word, leverage, uh, shifts to the creditors who suddenly now have some ability to wring out some concession from the owners. Here's one of the more complex aspects of all this. You know, Caesars, the company, owns all these different casinos and properties. And some of those casinos and properties generate more income than others do, correct? Yep. Like there's a lot of variability there, you know? And so the owners of the debt, of Caesars' debt, these distressed debt investors, okay, they're being paid off essentially from the revenues of these different properties. And what Caesars ends up doing over time, okay, and this is very complicated, I'm simplifying it, you know, to, you know, for the purposes of this chat, right, is it will like set up these subsidiaries inside its own company, in some cases to move some of these casinos and properties into one of these subsidiaries and then say that the income from those casinos and properties, okay, can't go to pay off some of those original debt investors, that that is shielded so that those investors can't, for example, say, hey, you didn't pay me back, so now I'm going to confiscate all these assets you have, these casinos and properties, right? And there's all kinds of like legal things you have to do to make this a legitimate transaction to try to shield some of those assets from the distressed debt investors. And that is sort of, you know, that is sort of at the heart of some of these fights, right? Like, am I getting this basically right? Yeah. So we'll we'll even take a step back here. And if we go back to the previous point I made, uh, Apollo does not want to give up on Caesars. It likes the business. Uh, It thinks it's going to snap back. It's just taking longer. And so it has to keep these uh, creditors and distressed debt funds at bay for a little bit more amount of time. And so they make the decision, and this is always a very hard decision for private equity firms, to put more money into the deal. Uh, And that's where the creativity you just described comes. And so rather than putting that new money, which ends up being hundreds of millions of dollars between them and their co-investors, they go to lengths to even set up a new public company. And that new public company facilitates what you just described are these asset transfers. In fact, they're not actually transfers. That new company that they capitalize with the new money ends up buying 
casinos from the original Caesars, if you will. And the controversy ultimately will become, what were the terms of those transactions? Were those casinos, which had been under the the purview of these distressed debt creditors, and then now shift to vehicles that are totally controlled by Apollo, what were the terms? How much did they pay? Was it a fair amount of money? And was that enough that was paid to actually make those creditors whole? Or are they left with this kind of empty husk or without those casinos and not that much cash in those transactions. And Max, the distressed debt investors obviously end up fighting back against Apollo's tactics. And if I were one of them, if I were one of those creditors, I also would probably be like, what the hell? But at the same time, the distressed debt investors were not the original creditors. They bought the debt from the original creditors and then got involved after, after Caesars was struggling because they saw an opportunity. They thought that by purchasing the debt for cheap, they would be able to make a nice return on it. And I'm really interested in this part of the story where the distressed debt investors are obviously trying to make money, but all throughout, they're also claiming that they're trying to uphold legal and, and maybe even ethical standards. Yeah, I think that the, the distressed debt investors, in this case and others, they'll, they'll step into the original creditor's shoes and they'll just complain louder. <laughs> I mean, the way you described, if I was a lender, I would be shocked and appalled. That I mean, that's that's what they they say. They're aggrieved that any value could be taken away from their reach when they feel like they should get the credit support from those assets or they didn't get enough value. And so that's always going to be the stance when you're stepping into the shoes of the original creditors. You know, let's forget that we maybe bought the the debt at 50, 60, 70 cents on the dollar. And uh, if we get back 10 cents more, then that's going to be a win for us. And so, you know, that that is part of their strategy is to come in and, and, you know, complain loudly and maybe get a settlement somewhere in the middle. In this case, the the investors in the way we describe it really felt like they were on the side of the angels <laughs> you know they and they finally felt like we have got like the best legal claims that i've ever seen in my career and so they on top of the incentive to make a lot of money they felt they were in the right and they were ultimately uh, uh deemed to have been in the right by an independent examiner uh which which very much vindicated most of what the uh, the junior creditors thought so it was, you know, it, it's their job to come in and complain. Uh, but in this case, there was a lot of legitimate gripes about not receiving full value for what had happened and, and uh, not having the corporate governance structure in place that there should have been. And that made for, uh, you know, some people feeling very self-righteous when they were in the negotiating room. Yeah. It also kind of points to just how much ambiguity can exist in a battle like this, in a legal battle like this. And one of the kind of surprising and consistently surprising things in the book was that the law itself is just so far from being, you know, settled here, right? Even for something as important as like capital markets and capital market structure, you know, there's a kind of formlessness to it where even the the guys at Apollo, right, the private equity firm were like sometimes just kind of seemed like they were just slinging stuff at the wall. Like, maybe this will work to justify this particular transfer of assets. Who knows? Let's give it a shot. You know, and sometimes it worked and sometimes not, and ultimately not, of course, in this case. But it's interesting to me that there's that much flexibility that's 
I don't want to say preserved, but it just exists there, right? And it's what actually sets makes it so that there's a template for a battle like this to take place. Uh, is this something that you guys can elaborate on for like a listener who's like, what the hell? <laughs> like, why, why can't we just figure out who's owed what money? Like, that should be so clear. Firms like Apollo, and let's make it more general, it's not just Apollo, but all companies, uh, private equity-owned companies or companies that are in trouble, they understand that, one, possession is nine-tenths of the law, and two, if you want to, and the corollary to that is if you want to get this asset, which you think is yours, you're going to have to come fight me, and that's going to be expensive and time-consuming, and my pockets are deeper than yours, and my resolve is deeper than yours, and so that is an incentive to be uh, aggressive, and that that is, uh, I think, a relatively new phenomenon because firms often would care about their reputation. We talked about LBOs uh, in the 2005-2008 era. A bunch of those got in trouble during the early stages of the financial crisis. The view was those private equity firms would never walk away from binding commitments because they cared about their reputation. What they really care about is not losing money. So plenty of them were happy to walk away. And so that is what I think has happened in bankruptcies. And people have realized if you're willing to fight and have resolve and have deep pockets, a lot of less formidable players will just throw their hands up and walk away. This is fascinating, though, is that they, they seem to care more about their reputation for pugnacity rather than, you know, their reputation for being a reliable partner on one side of a debt transaction, right? I, you know, the, the, I, I think it's always interesting to overlay this type of investment with some sort of moral lens. <laughs> like, is what they're doing ethical? If they're just a bunch of hedge funds and private equity firms that are beating the crap out of each other, what's so bad about that? Who cares, right? right I mean, sure. it, are there stakeholders that wind up uh, hurt by what they're doing? I, I think so. I think that's where you have to look is these guys – oftentimes have the same investors that provide them with money. So they could be pension funds, it could be CalSTRS, it could be CalPERS, it could be uh, you know some endowment fund that's giving a little bit of money to Apollo, a little bit to Oak Tree, a little bit to these you know other investors. And they're taking this money to just beat each other up so that one of them gets a little bit more into their pocket. And uh, the, you know they could be providing better service to the market as a whole and and potentially to the stakeholders that are in the employees of these companies if they came to an agreement earlier. Just to be clear about what you just explained, private equity funds raise money from investors like pension funds. You mentioned CalPERS and CalSTRS. Those are pension funds. And also, of course, distressed debt investors, they also raise money from investors. That's where they get their money. And what you're saying here is that the two sides fighting over Caesars, the private equity firms, and the distressed debt investors can actually have some of the same investors. Like, that's normal. Like, those pension funds might give a little money to one side, to Apollo, and they might be giving some money to, you know, the distressed debt investors. So, (laughs) really, it may not matter that much to the investors which side wins. It only matters to the private equity firms and the distressed debt investors themselves. I just kind of wanted to flag that because it's really important to understand. You know, that's one of the factors that is is lost when you get into the the weeds of these battles. Um, but many of them, you, you find when you interview them, they say, "Look, whatever is permitted within the four corners of the document is something that I'm going to do if it helps me make money for my LPs, my limited partners, my investors." And that is their moral compass. If, if it's going to make money for my LPs, then it's okay. If I'm not breaking a law and it's okay within the credit docs, then I'm going to do it. 
And some of these credit docs are so loose, meaning they don't fully hammer down the assets that they're being lent upon. For instance, you know, you take a mortgage on a house and the lender, <laughs> they're a little bit desperate to make that loan. And so you get, to make, you get to make a bunch of concessions within that credit doc. And then it turns out you can't pay the interest. But there's a covenant that says, well, you know what? I'm going to be able to dividend out my garage and my nursery and maybe my backyard and maybe a couple of the other you know, appliances. And so I'll still own those when you can take the rest of the house. The lender will be like, mm, I didn't think that that was possible. And I don't think that that's right. And that's that's the case of what happened here is these these credit documents, they are hundreds and hundreds of pages long. They are weaponized to the nth degree and whatever, even sometimes there's mistakes uh, or loopholes uh, that have been created. Uh, they'll be taken advantage of if it's if it's going to help one of the parties win their case. Sujit, on, on the question of morality, I actually had trouble applying a good guys versus bad guys framework to the story in your book. I mean, it it was clear that Apollo had acted truly brazenly many times, as you described. And in the end, the distressed debt investors were, in fact, vindicated in these legal battles. They took over the company, appointed a new board, got paid a bunch of money, and so on. But mainly what I took away from the story is just how adversarial these capital markets issues can be. And maybe that's okay. Maybe it's fine to have different parts of the capital markets fighting for different things, being vigilant. And then through all these big legal fights, you can end up arriving at sensible outcomes. I don't know. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just very interested in that. Uh, but what do you think? There definitely is a view that an adversarial system uh, really is the best way to lead to just and equitable outcomes. There is not actually any kind of pure morality. In fact, these are just contractual disputes and contracts are on a piece of paper and can be read literally and judges uh, who are independent voices can uh, render opinions or the sides can settle on their own. And in fact, there is no kind of right and wrong. In fact, these are all financial players who have investors to whom they answer and uh, are our fiduciaries too. And again, the adversarial system is the best way to resolve such disputes. Uh, I think this case is interesting in that how much it advanced the idea that there is no line that can be pushed up against, either by creditors or private equity firms. And this kind of um, knockdown, out affair is truly revolutionary in the Caesars case just for how extreme it was and how dramatic it was. And how, how contentious, How right? contentious like, it was and how uh, just uh, kind of multi-party it was. There was you, your friend and foe changed every day. There were multiple alliances shifting all the time. And in fact, uh, there is this kind of Wild West element that has resulted from the Caesars case, which is a very interesting uh, coda, I think. One, uh, and we talk about this in the epilogue, Caesars could have been a cautionary tale saying this is what happens when private equity firms hedge funds, lawyers, and bankers push the line and perhaps cross the line at times. And in fact, they will refrain from doing so after learning the lessons of Caesars. In fact, Caesars ends up being a roadmap. This world of distress and bankruptcy and Chapter 11 only becomes more aggressive in the years after Caesars. The lawyers and their aggressive documents and the bankers and their structures and the private equity firms. And we know all the cases. Oh, so they were looking at this as like almost a playbook for how to fight a given side or something like that. That's right. So if we think about the, the battles subsequent to Caesars, you know, Neiman Marcus is a famous one that's been in the news, Toys R Us, J. Crew. But for some of these broken companies, particularly these retailers and deals from long ago that have finally gone bad, uh, there does seem to be 
less of a constraint on aggressive or bad behavior. And one of the reasons I think is, is that I'd gone to a conference and I'd written about this in, a, in the Financial Times. Uh, this was after Caesars. Uh, there was a banker on, on stage at this uh, conference of distressed lawyers and bankers who said the slogan or the motto at the moment in the world was, what, what would Apollo do? So that was the question all firms were asking themselves. And so this kind of stigma that uh, perhaps Apollo had as being like the one rogue or one kind of renegade or aggressive player, that has been shed because everyone else has adopted it too. And so there's been this norm that has changed and uh, every not every, but maybe most private equity firms are not afraid to engage in transactions that they wouldn't have five years ago. There's certainly some of these uh, creditors we talked about uh, that just a minute ago who seem sanctimonious at times in the Caesar story, like they were fighting for some kind of greater principle by holding uh, Apollo accountable. In fact, have been engaged in their own very aggressive transactions where they've been uh, accused of the same kind of behavior they had condemned in the Caesar's case. So this world has only become more rough and tumble. It's an interesting outcome. I would have not have necessarily predicted it. And the legal community, academics and judges are, are scratching their heads actually and trying to figure out why that is and if there is, uh, if there is some way out of that. Here's at least one problem that's, I think, easy to identify with this sort of adversarial nature of these fights over the capital markets, right? If you know that the terms of a credit document or any other legal document involved are in dispute and are likely to be in dispute, then won't some people just kind of altogether avoid engaging in these deals in the first place? And then that makes it harder to actually, I don't know, borrow and lend money, for example. Because like, let's say Apollo buys a company and that company now has all this debt. Well, like, if somebody says, hey, do you want to buy some of this debt? I say, well, no, Apollo owns that company. If they run into trouble, they won't pay it off. And then I'm going to end up in a seven-year-long fight with Apollo uh, just to get paid back on this. You know, so like it, it would seem like it would compromise, you know, the integrity of deal making. What you're saying is that actually what's happened is that there's still a lot of deal making. There's still a ton of money sloshing through the system. It's just gotten rougher out there. People are looking at this as a playbook and they're sort of digging in for a fight. Yeah, and that's actually an interesting observation that there is this tax. It's a, it's a friction of the market that, in fact, if there is some kind of dispute down the road, uh, it's going to be expensive and messy. And that should, uh, at the margin at least, curtail some actors from participating in the market because they just don't want to deal with that. And that is an inefficiency, theoretically. The flip side of that is what we've seen is, again, just incredible liquidity in the markets. And uh, these firms, these asset management firms, just full of capital with investors trying to beat near zero interest rates. And so they are not thinking in the long term. They're thinking about, I've got to deploy this money quickly. And you know what? I'm going to take this leverage loan or this high-yield bond, even though the documents around it are not great. They're very company and issuer and private equity firm friendly. And I'm going to cross my fingers that in two years or three years or five years that there's not going to be some kind of fight to the death that uh, ultimately uh, ensues. Yeah. I guess some of these things can just price a little bit differently too, right? Like if you're expecting that there could be a fight, you might say, well, I'll only buy it if it pays out a little bit more in interest. And so it'll raise the cost of borrowing for the company, which won't be great, but then the debt investor will be getting compensated for what it perceives to be a higher risk of that investment, right? Yeah. And there are uh, there are observations, and I think we talk about in the book, that some private equity firms, uh, in fact, have to borrow at a premium precisely because of this reputation. 
I got to say, there's something else about all this that bothered me all throughout the book. And it goes something like this. Throughout these years and years of legal battles, you had all these brilliant people trying to game the legal system to argue that, no, this one part of the credit documents actually does apply, or in this case, we are in compliance versus not being in compliance, like all these sort of legal battles, all these genius level types are doing that instead of, I don't know, helping to run the company, turning the company around, right? Like, Even the people inside the company sometimes who were running, for example, Caesars, seem not even to understand these legal battles, even though these legal battles seemed at least as important for the eventual outcome of the company as the actual operations of the company itself, right? Like they're involved just in the finance and financial engineering side when it just makes me think that it's a little bit sad that all these brilliant people could be doing something to be, I don't know, more constructive rather than engage in this battle over the carcass of this failing company or this company that's struggling. That seems like a problem to me. What do you think? Yeah, there's an interesting question about, uh, again, these lawyers and bankers and hedge fund guys, they're all very well-educated, very smart. They could be doing a lot of things. And are they, in fact, applying their talents to some kind of inefficiency or tax or deadweight loss when, in fact, they could be making the pie bigger for everyone rather than engaging in this zero-sum game purely for for their own benefit? I mean, I think it is inter- there's an interesting juxtaposition here in characters. Gary Loveman, the, the genius CEO of Harris and then Caesars, uh, who ultimately sells the company to Apollo and TPG for nearly $30 billion. In fact, has a PhD in economics. He's one of the, he's arguably the, the smartest guy in the story, a PhD from MIT on the Harvard Business School faculty, uh, creates this incredible kind of Caesars uh, acquisition machine built around loyalty points and loyalty uh, rewards. And he's the one who's like created this business who makes it so uh, so attractive and so valuable for, for Apollo and TPG. And he is not an expert in the machinations of the legal documents and the financial engineering. And there is this poignancy to the story where even if he is the smartest guy in in the in the narrative, in fact, uh, the Apollo guys and the TPG guys are worth 10 times what he is. And there is this envy that he ultimately develops, at least subconsciously, I think, about uh, how successful they have been in the intermediation of capital while he is uh, a person who's actually built a, a $30 billion, like a real business of casinos around this country. And uh, what, is, what does that say about our economic system where an actual operator, an actual math genius makes less money building a business and growing it rather than people who uh, play in spreadsheets. The Caesars Palace coup, how a billionaire brawl over the famous casino exposed the power and greed of Wall Street. Max Vermes, Sujit Indap. Guys, what a great book. Seriously, revelatory in so many ways and really sort of uncovers how finance works in the real world, uh, you know, once you once you put put your textbooks away, so um, it's fantastic. Max Sajit, thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Pleasure, Carter. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for today's show. You can find a link to the Caesar's Palace coup in the show notes for this episode, along with links to some of Sajit's and Max's other work. 
The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. And we are not for sale. You can't buy us out. Unless, if I'm being honest, the offer is really sweet. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>